Hello, I'm Penelope Maver and welcome to Earth Converse podcast, where we explore our relationship and conversations with the earth, all in the hope of inspiring a deeper connection with ourselves, each other, and the earth that is our home. Here's my uh, teacher, but also learner. I think we're lifelong learners. Christiana Fersmuth, calling in from Washington, D.C., but German by birth. And we met uh, like two years ago at Denver train station. And we were all... Oh, right. Yeah. (laughs) I think I double parked the car. And this delightful woman who has been such an inspiration because we did a mirroring course. So she was a guide in, in helping us mirror to reflect back people's stories and to be mirrored by Christiana is just such a lesson and to be really listened to and felt loved because she just is with you in such a deep way and has this beautiful worldliness that and sort of so many offerings and parts to her that then she will put your story in a beautiful song or theater or just it's really really quite something so Christiana is an international consultant. She's got her own global business and I and she's um, won an award for a winner of a 2018 CEO Today Management Consulting Award. And you've worked in the international development sector and, and now in a, in a global consulting, also a vision guide. And I've had got the pleasure of currently helping her to pilot her nature-based coaching program, working online with it. So I was out last night doing a solo as part of that. And now I'm here with you. So thank mm. you so much. Well, what a lovely introduction. I'm like, all right. Okay. I put those hats on gladly. We'll go linear. Your background and your growing up, you know, you've gone from the farming background to the city, Washington, D.C., and this wonderful solo hike. So I'm going to actually have a little excerpt from your blog in a woman's solo, which I'll put on the, the credentials of this episode. September the 7th, 2014. All my low and high points, transitions, challenges, reconnecting, letting go, or getting closer, major decisions have taken place in nature, or I have processed them in nature. So Mm. that's quite a start. So we're going to hear your background and then around the hike, your, your vision guiding, and then go into your offers. And like a good consultant, you'll leave us with some tools and ideas about how we can become more conscious in our relationship and conversations with the earth how does that sound yeah that last part sounds like a high bar but but we'll get there yeah (laughs) actually I love this also in your blog I hiked in mum's belly so start there in your mum's belly (laughs) oh wow yeah well um Germany you know is is a country where um a lot of people have been living for so many generations I mean we've had migrants but I think a lot of the population really can trace their roots back to before recorded time and so my mother's family has come from this small farming village in Germany and um, goes back and back and back and back I don't know I think my uncle traced it to at least recording recorded records um, written records of I don't know maybe like the 16th or 15th century so very very deep roots Mm. and I think almost all my family have been farmers or farmers plus Um, and so um, 
my mom, you know, grew up on a farm. Um, my father was a, um, a refugee. They, they lived in Berlin. And when the Russian army came in World War II, mom packed up the three kids in a, in a, um, a cart. And, and his dad, my grandfather, was a, a soldier. And so they fled from the um, Russian army until they eventually, the Red Cross, put the family back together. But so my dad's experiences are all in nature, survival through nature, you know, stealing eggs and collecting acorns. And, uh, and my mom's side is, you know, farming, farming the land. And so I guess when those two came together, nature was always part of our family. You know, they'd come home from work. And the first thing they did is took off office clothes, put on the oldest things they could find, and we'd go barefoot into the forest. And so that's what my mom did. And so in her belly, I hiked with her probably every day, you know, or went in the garden or, um, in fact, she said the night before I was born and I was two weeks overdue, she was with friends in the, in the yard of the, my grandma's farm and she danced, she loved dancing. She danced the Charleston, you know, the one where you kick up your legs and half an hour later, the water broke. (laughs) (laughs) So dancing and barefoot yeah. in the yard got me to finally say, wow. I guess I'll come out. Come. Are you a dancer? I love, I love dancing. I don't do it as much as my heart probably would love. So, yeah, so nature really has been a part. Um, and so I grew up for the first three years of my life on, the, on my grandma's farm in a small village. Everybody was related to me. Mm. And I don't believe I ever thought of the separation of nature outdoors and indoors you know the doors were always open we'd run in and out uh the farmers would be in and out um didn't matter if it rained or not you know the concept of shelter was was different um yeah it it felt like there wasn't that separation sorry what was your uh, memory your first memory then i don't I don't know first memory just because I've heard so many stories and seen slides. So I don't know what's mine and what's been given to me, but what's certainly absolutely, um, absolutely clear is sensory Mm. barefoot. I mean, barefoot and every substance or that, that you could step on just having that feel still the grass, the cobblestones, the dirt, the rocks, the, you know, the roots, um, the, the flower bed, the, you know, the, the garden bed to pull out the carrots, um, mm-hmm. and probably smells, you know, cause I spent almost all my time outside. They couldn't get me indoors. Mm-hmm. And so the smells, you know, the rain, the soil, um, there was no sense of outside was dirt, you yeah, know, it was something yeah. negative. It was the yeah. positive. Yeah. You could pull out a carrot and eat it with all the dirt on, but if you were to buy something for the store from the store, you'd wash it. <laughs> yeah. You know, so it was a clear. Yeah. You do? Yeah, from yeah. my dad and his a vegetable garden. Memories are probably the ones that I feel most in my in my body. Um, no fear of outs- outdoors and climbing. And that's been verified. I wanted to climb everything. Mm. Without help, my mom mm. said the things that I always would say. No, I'll do it alone. You know, if, they, <laughs> if I was climbing stairs or climbing a tree, and they wanted to give me a hand, no, no, 
Actually, I read that in your blog, this this word alone. It, started, it was early exactly. in your vocabulary. You're Very now- early. <laughs> and then perhaps just the next step I remember is that I also have this sense in my body that when people, relationship emotions or the indoors became too close, too stuck, mm-hmm. too overwhelming, my way of dealing with it has always been I've got to get out. And just the fact of going out would always give me a spaciousness and a groundedness and a reconnection Mm -hmm. that when I came back inside or back to the previous stuck place, Mm -hmm. I was unstuck. Mm -hmm. And so I was then able to deal with things in a much, much better way. so an escape, and, yeah, and an escape and a healing at the at the same time. Yeah, I think I've been thinking about that. I know I've been thinking about that a lot. You know, was it how much was it an escape? And if I had been able to stay with it, you know, resolving it in a different way. And I feel that that it was empowering for me to say mm-hmm. too much. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go, even as a young kid. You know, just mm-hmm. disappearing for an hour and a half, getting on my bike or walking. Um, but also I think that intrinsic knowledge that right now, the place I'm in, I just cannot take any more. I'm not in a place where I can deal with this being true to myself. I need to go somewhere where I can get that back, Mm. you know, and then come back and, and be, be, be back to my, my, my true self. I think that's been in my body and without thinking that's always been the case, always. Yeah, it really is in your bones to go out and intuitively seek the outs- outdoors, the nature, to reset. Absolutely, yeah. And just this feeling of no fear, just no fear. And I think my parents and all my farming families helped with that. Nobody instilled fear. You know, nobody said, don't do this or don't balance here or don't climb here. Or, you know, um, there wasn't this hovering supervision. My brother and I disappeared for days, you know, like, I mean, we'd come back at night, but we were just gone. And that's continued, hasn't it? You too. That's continued. (laughs) You don't experience fear. Interestingly enough, I feel that, um, One, when I go out now, my main fear is other humans. So when I do my solo hikes, my main fear is, could somebody wish me harm from other humans? And that has led me to, for example, not go into Rock Creek Park, which is a wonderful national park where I live in Washington, um, after dark, which is really a pity because I just love to sleep there overnight. And even in Wiesbaden, where my fam, my, my parents still live, um, there's a wonderful, wonderful, huge areas of forest. And I've so often thought of hanging up a hammock and I just don't feel safe. It's so close to a city. So it's, it's, I feel that probably also as a woman, you know, right in the back of my neck, it's yeah. this human predator worry. Um, and just not feeling I have enough skills and potentially even strength to deal with physically with that. Um, and then, you know, as I've become more understanding of what the impact of my getting hurt in an accident would have on my parents and my brother and others, I've become more cautious from that sense of responsibility, you know. So I probably am pausing longer before I climb up or down something than I would have even five years ago. 
you know, and it's not so much the fear of, can I do it? But are you really sure that this is okay, given what the repercussions could be? Yeah, keep going. So I never stopped with the, with the nature um, being such a huge, huge part of my life. Um, even when we moved to the city and same thing, we were a gang of kids and our parents were like, out you go, put on your rubber boots, your Wellingtons, you know, and don't come back until, you know, (laughs) dinner time. (laughs) And we would just be roaming as I got older and, you know, my social life changed and we moved to another part of the city feeling really unhappy and sort of trapped because that part of the city wasn't as wild anymore. And we moved to the fourth floor and there were no other kids. And also my social life changed, you know, like I was more a teenager. And so it wasn't so much about, you know, I don't know, you know, getting rid of manure and having my little baby calf at my aunt's place. But it was more about being on my bike and riding, you know, 25 miles to have endless conversations about that boy with my best friend, <laughs> yeah. you know? So it was a different kind of outdoors, but we definitely spent more time Stay indoors yeah. or on the, on the porch. But that's, yeah. I think, a normal life, yeah. a normal yeah. life transition. When I look back now, I think the concept of life and death felt so different because it wasn't removed. You know, we butchered, my uncle butchered, um, you know, I grew up, um, chopping the head of a chicken, which is funny. I'm vegetarian, vegan now and have been for a long time, but uh, plucking the chicken, you know, like I was involved in every part of the food process. And um, the, um, the village cemetery was part of our daily life. And so for large chunks of the summer, when I stayed with my grandma and she got older, I would be in charge of watering the plants on the graves every day. And it was a gathering place. I love that cemetery. You know, it was, I, I, I still, every time I go and visit my grandma's village, the first place I stop is her grave. And, you know, we would talk about them as if they were still alive and they were part of everyday life. And the cemetery was the gathering place. So I feel such a different relationship, you know, to ancestors and to, them still being with us and them being in the land and on the land. And um, also the, obviously in farming, you know, like something dies to provide life to something else. And it was done quite respect, quite respectfully. How is that sort of integrated or your approach to life? I'm, I'm thinking of the quote roots and wings. I love that the best thing parents can give are roots and wings. And it sounds like yours mm. were really from ancestral back, yeah. tracing it back down to the sort of the farming, the land roots. And then I know yourself and in terms of international woman, have they influenced mm. you? It's a really great question. I feel my roots are so deep and sometimes, you know, there are exercises where people imagine who's got your back. And I have a never ending line of strong, solid tribal members, you know, or, or clan members or family members that go beyond my birth family, especially very strong women all the way back. I mean, I all the way, it. go, go, go. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel I, I, I really, there's a solidity um, also to my feet on the ground and this rock solidness. Um, I feel that that has also made it harder many times to grow wings 
because I'm so anchored. And I feel that during the times where I've needed to grow wings, it's I had to do it. Often I felt on my own because my, my people wanted me to stay. Yes. And that it required sometimes what felt like a chopping off. Um, you know, I've got to really pull the roots out to, mm. to have wings. Mm. Um, I've always returned. Um, but looking back, I feel, well, maybe I could have done it not as abruptly. You know, maybe I could have been in a conversation more so people understood more why I needed to leave, you know. Or I don't know what my brother was thinking when his sister all of a sudden left and he became the only child. Well, I know it was hard for him, but, you know, it felt like I really need to do that for me and I've just got to go, mm. you know. so I. But you've obviously been, because you've been in the States for a number of years now. Yeah, I... Um, my parents, in that sense, were great. They encouraged. Well, we traveled. You know, a lot of Europe. A lot of Europeans spent the summer holiday somewhere else. You cram the family into a small car, and then you drive to Italy or to France. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to support me in learning languages. And so I spent a summer in France and a summer in England with families. Um, and then I, I just traveled with friends. You know, we backpacked through France, and we. Um, Um, you know, I biked with friends and I camped with friends. Um, and then I went to an international school, uh, in Wales and very nature-based, you know, in a place by the ocean, United World College, it's called. So there are 21 or 22 of those now. And, um, that led me then to the U.S., and I would say that that also expanded my world because the kind of wilderness that exists in the U.S., I had not found that type of wilderness, Mm. you know, in Europe. And so that was another spreading wings, Mm. you know, like that wildness. It's just, Mm. and I would say another part is that, like we talked before, in every transition I had, I've gone to nature. So um, I won't go through everything, but I think what you read from the blog is so true. Because when I look back, finished with that part of my life, the college, First thing I did is I bought a backpack and an interrail ticket. And I, you know, for, for a few months, I, I spent in Scandinavia visiting friends always outdoors. And then when I was done with college here in the States, I came to the States for four years to go to get my bachelor and master's degree. So when college was over, I bought this old car and went back and forth, you know, across the country um barefoot wow and just sleeping under the stars and you know on Big Sur and and just again you know having people help me on the way um and then when I was done with my graduate degree um my then boyfriend and I and backpacked for two years um in Asia and Australia New Zealand and the islands Mm. again all in nature you know we hiked I remember there was one stretch where we were literally walking in New Zealand for six Mm. weeks um yeah yeah so it's always been it's been that part of I'm in transition I'm in between places I have no clue what the next step is go out and was that 
like in terms of yes, there's some intentionality around that, around the transitions, and there's something you know I need to, I need to figure out wh- where I'm going, and and uh, I'll go out to nature to find it. Was it so? Was that in your subconscious or through sort of becoming? When did you become more intentional? Because I think that we go on on adventure and exploring. We you know we want to, we're tourists, we're or we're hikers, we travel the world if we're lucky. And at what point was it in the intentionality of it? Perhaps when I did the backpacking trip um, for two years, there was this real sense of life phase mm. that this is a good time to, to not be structured, to not plan ahead. This is the time. Yeah. Whereas I think before it was also the right time but not with that intentionality. Yeah. And I often say, you know, if my, my grandma got very sick and she, she then passed away. And so I made it back in time for, to be with her for the last month and and accompany her in her, in her dying. And um, I think if that hadn't happened, if she had managed to be immortal, I keep thinking I'd still be backpacking yeah. <laughs> in nature, you know. Yeah. I'd be on, on National Park number 4,890. <laughs> I'd have moss growing, you know. And but my no. backpack would have gotten lighter. By now yeah, I'd be down exactly. Just, too, yeah. you know, no underwear, yeah. no socks. Well, thank you, Grandma. And um, But what a, what a beautiful uh, honoring and being able to accompany her at that time. Yeah, yeah. That was really, that was important, yeah. Do you want to say anything about that? Um, I feel that it brought a real realization to me that um, that death is a both a letting go, but also bringing closer. Because right when it happened, you know, my family, some families break apart when they experience, you know, an instrumental, important family member um, not being there anymore that has been maybe holding things in a certain way. Um, now granted it wasn't my, my mom or dad at that time, but still she was so important for my mm-hmm. brother and I in that, and my, my, well, my parents too. Mm-hmm. Um, but our families, family came together, you know, that tribe came together, my grandma's, um, cousins and, and the, who were still alive and all the people who've been in her sitting in her lap mm-hmm. and who she cooked for, we all came together and I felt so held and so there was such an intimacy and vulnerability and the celebration of her life to a certain degree I felt like you know I wish that never ends but it was it was death that brought us together and it feels very different when it's a wedding or a baptism than when it's a death there is sort of that so I I came to appreciate death or or even a crisis as in a way bringing out often the best in all of us remembering what's really core you know the walls shields fall away um and so that I think was a really important uh learning for me and I haven't I mean I can't say that for sure but I found crises don't really scare me um there are other things that scare me you know but uh, but a crisis like that I think I have that belief it can bring people together and bring the best of people and what does scare you um well, I think at a really deep level is um, one is rejection, you know, in some way feeling that I have to be careful and prevent that, which of course you can't, right? Mm. And that's part of taking wing, you know, to have that liberty to just 
be, be compassionate, mm -hmm. but you just don't know, right? You, you can't do something for other people. You can just be the most authentic you can. But I would say that's probably a big one. And with my mother's milk, I feel like I have uh, that, that safety, that financial safety concern, you know, in, in a way, the post-war experience that my mm -hmm. parents and my grandparents have held, I feel in a way I'm still a post-war generation. My brother holds it differently, but I think growing up in the village, so close to the stories of everybody and not having enough food, not having money and not knowing, you know, losing so, so many, particularly men in the war. Um, I think every time we left my grandma, she would be worried that she'd never see us again. Accidents could happen when we were driving. So this reassurance, you know, I'm going to see you again and the worry that not and financial security and, and enough food and shelter. That's, that's big. Mm. Um, incidentally, I don't care much about food. I like it, but you know, I can go for days without it and I'd rather hike than worry about stopping for food, <laughs> but finances and money and what it represents. That's a big one. You know, like I'm like my mom, it's like with this COVID now, I lost a lot of income and within a day I saw myself, you know, dying under a bridge mm. it's not realistic mm. but it's so embedded in me mm. boom that mm. image comes out so i would say mm. those two mm. probably would will continue to accompany me my whole life taking those questions out to the land i have and again you know nature is is my my guide because um so jumping ahead i did my first vision fast in 20 i think it was 2009 2008 or 2009 and um, two themes that came up for me was that um, in order to grow wings, I needed to really deeply work on that. What is my war and what's not my war? <laughs> yeah. And I realized how much of what I've lived has been not my war. It has been my parents' war. It's been the ancestral war. It has been other people's war. And that was really hard. I remember crawling. I was wow. in a red rock canyon and I remember doing, you know, death lodge and a lot of ceremonies. But I remember for many, many parts of the days crawling into this, there was this little crack in one of the cliffs, crawling, squeezing myself in wow. as tight as I could, like in a tomb and just having whatever came come and really this this liberation sense of shouting out this is not my war you know and then I wrote a lot of poetry about that it just poured out of me I think I wrote something like 30 poems during my first vision fast is one stirring in you uh, I'd have to look it up. It's on yeah. my, it's, I have a, I have another blog. It's on my website, which is called singing bowl. Oh, great. I'll put that in the link yeah. as well. Oh, super. I didn't yeah. know that. That's such a big thing. You know, what's mine, what's the individual versus the collective story or what's, what am I shedding? You know, what am I carrying along for the, for the ancestors and wow. And the other part I remember connected with that when I said rejection or the security is that, um, for those who don't know Vision Fast, who are listening, uh, at one point you decide where the spot will be where you're going to spend a significant amount of alone time. And um, there was a process where they had us all be in a circle and then 
close our eyes and turn around and just point in the direction that felt it was really drawing us. I mean, you could leave your eyes open or closed. And I, I clearly knew, like my arm flew out and I turned and that was it. And at that moment where I made the clear full body decision where to go, I turned in the other direction and I burst out in tears. There was this incredible grieving and heart-wrenching, like I felt I was dying because I had said no to the other direction. So what was in there was a door closing. I rejected something. Um, you know, I will never know what it would have felt like to be there. I can't have all of the different aspects. So that, that was another... Yeah, it was another understanding of everything that's tied up in saying no or, you know, yeah, having said yes and no to me. Because clearly the nature also mm. told me, you're not going there, you're going there. <laughs> and what came yeah. out of the journey in that? I don't know, maybe because it's not not complete, you know, it's it's mm, it's it's an ongoing, ongoing yeah, it's an ongoing. ongoing journey. Like I said, it's a core. That and safety, I think these are sort of, we sometimes people talk about core wounds. Clearly, there was something that was triggered in me that embedded it so deeply that, you know, I will always revisit. I'll always cycle and I'm like, oh, I can deal with this better now. Look at that. I'm yeah. not the same I was before. I can deal with this better. Wham! Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Another iteration. I guess yeah. there's more to learn. I feel that those are, so to speak, my core core wounds you know and I think that there are general themes you know am I enough am I loved am I you know so so the act of of being in the face of all of that um will continue to be to be part of it um for me I just have never felt that nature rejects you know nature just is and you're being with it so I truly cannot think of any experience that where I would have put the metaphor on nature that nature rejects me that's just not in its nature because <laughs> I'm part of it I think that was the other aspect that I really really came to feel and understand during that first vision fast that um, on my first night in my solo spot I still remember it I chose um, so I just one backtracking is that in in preparation for the solo time, there are often solo day walks involved. And on a lot of my solo day walks, I had some names come to me that clearly were part of my identity that I didn't know. So one, one name that came to me was Singing Bowl. And all my life, I have gathered people and held the container. And it's part of my profession as a facilitator and trainer and coach. And so... Um, I found my solo spot, which was this steep, steep red rock cliff. And on top of it was a sandstone formation that was a perfectly shaped singing oh, bowl. Oh, beautiful. And then on the other end, there was a little ledge where I slept. And then on the other side, it went down to this gorgeous creek with aspen trees. And so I um, had ceremonies in the creek as well as, you know, in the red rocks still remember this um, this place. I'll never forget the image. Mm -hmm. But I remember the first night sitting there and the moon came out and I looked around and I literally heard, finally, you're here. We've been waiting for you. You are so welcome. 
finally you're here. And it felt like the whole world was saying, not, not that I hadn't been there before, but it's like, no, finally, that you are welcome, you know, that this is your home, that we've been waiting for you to take up the space. And like every grandfather and grandmother you could think of, they were giving me their lap and saying, oh, little one, you're here. We've been waiting. And that's been a recurrent theme in all my fasts, you know, this I'm home. And so I think in a way that's the other part to security and rejection, isn't it? Because when I feel that way, rejection is not possible. (laughs) And do you... Do you integrate? Like, is that your, your your happy place? I mean, I would meditate on that. You know, like that image is constantly with you to remind you yeah. if you're feeling less resourceful or you're getting that twinge of, oh, here I go again. I've got the rejection thing happening. That you constantly that you, you return to that image and that felt sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's this iteration. The more you know, the more your gut and your heart tells you to follow it. And the more you follow it, the more you know. It's yeah. that, you know, reinforcing reinforcing cycle. And then there's less doubt. There's less doubt. It's just, I know. I just know. Does that, yeah. does that resonate with you? Absolutely. But also you can sit, I can sit, you know, with them. Like that doubt, sort of, sort of that doubt at a sort of ego level, but then, you know, the felt sense of knowing at the same time, <laughs> I feel like yes. I can hold those two in simultaneously. Yeah. Cause I think what I'm really learning over and over again is that, and this goes back again to, you know, the different directions and the, and what nature teaches that as a responsibility to the community, you want to keep yourself safe. You don't want to have others have to rescue you or you don't want to be in a place where you're, you're, you're lost to people who will grieve you, you know? And so I feel it's my responsibility to also be skilled. Mm. You know, it's my responsibility to be healthy and to keep my muscles in shape. Not just because I can't imagine not being able to hike, but it also feels like it's my responsibility, you know? And so I think that ego that ego structure, that healthy ego, you know, I can feed myself, you know, I know what I need to stay healthy is a must for everything else. You know, Absolutely. it's not, it's not uh, yeah. egotistical, you know, it's, no. it's a necessity. It is a, ser- yeah, it is a service to yourself and the collective, I think. And I think, yeah. it, I think that's the same about consciousness. We have, you know, a moral, ethical, <laughs> social responsibility to be as conscious as possible. I, I totally and, agree. Yeah. And this is why I want to do this work. I see that at a collective level. Well, I, you know, like to see it. That, you know, everything is, every graph, graph you see is exponential, isn't it? And I'm sure consciousness will be too. You know, and the other part thought as you're, as you're saying that that comes to me is that um, I hadn't put it in word that way, but I think, um, you know, when I talk to friends who are child psychologists, they say the way a child can have roots and wings is that there is this solidity of I'm okay, I'm exactly the way I need to be, and I have a safe, I have a safe place to either return to or to push off from, right? If you don't have solid mm-hmm. ground, like birds, they need the nest to push off when they first fly, or you know, every bird pushes off from something. And so I think for me, nature has been that, you know, and the more I have felt at home and welcome and I am a true part of nature. I think the more I have been able to 
push off and sprout wings, you know. So, um, for example, after one of the vision fasts, I really determined that bringing nature into my professional practice was going to have to happen. And that triggered fears, right? Because if you say yes to something, they say no to something else, you know. And so what paying work might I give up and who would come and who would not come and who can I partner with and what do I do? But, you know, I've been doing it. And so I think without that building of that solid ground, um, I would not have been able to take what feels like increasing risks. Mm-hmm. But as they increase, I've been feeling they become less risky. You know, it's like the more you push off and fly, it's like little chicks that hatch. Mm-hmm your wings grow stronger mm. and then you can soar for longer. So, but yeah. I think it's essential to feel that yeah. ground. Is- yeah. Can you just tell us a little bit more about your beautiful heart? And I'll put the link on. So a woman's soul, a self-discovery milestone in your life. I get teary-eyed when oh, I think about Oh, tell us. I feel like I started getting very confident uh, in if I really feel I need to do something, the universe will align. And if nobody else is doing it with me, I'll do it alone. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Which then went to the place of, and so, so I had always done that, but it was getting more a solid knowledge, knowing. And so, you know, I've hiked, like I said, for, for many, many, many long weeks and months. So that part didn't feel complicated or, or unknown. Um, and I had heard of the John Muir Wilderness ever since I first came to the U.S., but I didn't know much about it. People were just talking. It, it was like a mythical, like an epic. And, um, and what actually triggered it, that I became familiar with the Pacific Crest Trail, and that then pointed me in the direction to find out what actually is behind this epic I've had in my mind for so many years. Is it doable? What does it mean? And so when I became a bit more familiar with that, I was like, that's it. Now is the time to do it because it became concrete. It, it stopped being a mythical legend to something <laughs> concrete. Um, and it wasn't so much, I think, that I turned 50 that year, but um, I was going through a major shift in my life. And um, I, you know, that was the time. It was right. There was nothing else. That's what it was going to be. My parents, my, my mom and all my small village um, uh, relatives tried to talk me out of it. They kept saying, really? how can you do this to us? <laughs> going into such a danger. Don't you they know, know you don't, already? <laughs> don't do this to us. We're going to be worried. We're not going to be able to sleep because I was going to be out of communication, you know, for all that time. But no, it had to happen. And then it took forever just to get the permit. It was like a vision fast process just to get the permit. It took forever. And I thought I might not get it. Um, So I finally got it. And then there was all the planning because you have to ship your food somewhere in advance and then hike out to pick up the food and come back and then or, or organize for somebody to carry it in with you. So I think it took me a good probably four or five months just to plan everything. And then I bought new equipment and tested my equipment. And uh, the one concession I made was um, I bought, uh, it's called a spot device where you can send a signal 
pre pre written signal to your loved ones that says I've arrived at these coordinates and at these and there's a panic like a ah. uh, SOS button. Okay. Um, and so I did bring that, that was, you know, a concession to my parents resting easy, except if I not had a signal because of cloud cover and hadn't pressed it, my parents would have probably been more worried than not <laughs> yeah, at all, yeah. <laughs> but it worked and I, and I took it. Um, and so, um, I remember as I was, um, preparing for it, there were, was a dear friend who had never really been backpacking and hiking. And I said, well, do you want to come with me over the weekend to Shenandoah? Um, because I want to test my new tent and check out other things. And so she came with me. And actually, that was the start for her of a lifelong love now of hiking oh, and camping. Oh, that contagious enthusiasm. Contagious. Yes. But I remember <laughs> she said, you know what? If I can swing it, I'd love to come with you. And I was clear, no. It was so clear, yeah. no. It's just, this was mine. Um, not as a, you know, I don't love you, but I, that was my experience, my pace, my process. Yes, and you weren't rejecting the, anybody. Yeah. You were just stepping out in your own power yeah. and desire for that. Yeah. And so I would call it, it was a, a sort of a vision fast, right, during a major, major transition. And uh, I decided with a lot of uh, wonderful support from a woman who, who lived nearby in Independence, she gave me a lot of tips in terms of the mileage and where to camp. And I decided to... Um, to take some rest days. Yeah, so I hiked for, I think it was 29 days. Two things that just stand out for me. Number one was talking about a start. I, uh, I did everything with public transport uh, because, you know, I don't live on the West Coast. And so I had taken the bus to Yosemite Park and I was going to, and I was sleeping on the valley floor and the next day was going to take the shuttle to the high Alpine Plateau, which is called Tuolumne Meadow. And I had a bear canister shipped to me because you have to put your food in a bear canister to that post office. And then I was going to start um, from there. My permit started there. And there was wildfire and the wildfire was encroaching. And so they didn't even know if they would allow people into the park. Yeah. And so the night I arrived, they closed the road that was going to Tuolumne Meadow. And so the next day, here I was, my pack was way too full. <laughs> I had to then hike, I don't know how many miles, up a, like a very, very steep cliff to the place where I was going to start. And so I was thrown <laughs> with smoke billowing over and ash falling on me as I was hiking. My start was completely <laughs> different. And, you know? Sorry to laugh, sorry to laugh, but you know, it's sort of like the opening, you know, when you open a, a vision quest ceremony and, you, and you've got the smoke, the sage, so <laughs> you were truly I'd never smoked out of that way. Yeah, and helicopters coming with, you know, huge, huge tarps full of water that were, they were oh, dumping. Oh, goodness, what a blazing start. <gasps> yeah, and I had planned on shipping some things, and so, and I, by that time, I hadn't quite the idea of how dry it was there. So I didn't have enough water. And I remember reaching the plateau finally. And I was, I think, probably almost mm -hmm. dehydrated. Um, and then I saw a bear. And then, oh, and oh, then wow. halfway without up the cliff. Without your canister. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> without my canister. And then halfway up the cliff, it was this really narrow path, cliff up, cliff down with a little bit of brush. 
this huge ass rattlesnake is crossing in front of me and it disappears, but I can still see it on the side. And so here I am. And I'm like, what the heck do I do now? And my pack was so freaking heavy that, you know, I thought I could carry it in my hand and maybe throw it on the snake <laughs> or shield myself in case, you know, it would attack. I couldn't, I couldn't carry it in any other way than on my back. And so I was like, frickin' A, you know, my hike ends right here. <laughs> yeah, this is not such a good idea. I don't know about this. <laughs> well, because I had to be up because my permit was starting. And if you don't start the day of your permit, ah. you lose your permit. Wow. And so finally, you know, some people came the other way and there was this big, strong guy and he took a rock and <clears throat> threw it on the trail and the vibration caused the snake then to leave. I couldn't have lifted it. And so I kept. I kept going. So I experienced everything wow. I could the first day. Wow. It was all easy, easy strides from then on in. All easy strides from there. <laughs> and the last thing I'll say is when I finally got to the top of Mount Whitney, there's a, there's a mountain hut where you can take shelter. And, you know, you start really early because it's a very long day up and an even longer time down. I think it's something like, a I don't remember, 12, 14, 16 hour day. And uh, I just cried. Like I, I stopped, you know, just shy of the summit and I was sitting there and I was crying for the longest time. Just that overwhelm of mm. I'm here. It wasn't even I made it. It was just yeah. I'm here. And what I loved about it also, there were a number of other hikers passing me and they all looked at me and they all gave me this, I get it. I'm with you you know yeah I love that but you're here like it's sort of like back in your vision quest you know where the ancestors go you know finally you're here I'm Um, here yeah and I've done solo hikes since then and they really uh, they really sustain me and they push my edge you know Mm -hmm. for sure but Mm -hmm. I wouldn't give it up did you return a different person I suppose it would be hard not to you know like different I mean you know, yeah I did I did in like like all the way to my DNA yeah yeah it's definitely a, a rite of passage in that sense mm. yeah I, f- I feel I was more integrated you know bolder um yeah and and I shifted you know I think there was in a way I took on more identities and maybe dropped some identities you know I remember afterwards really stepping into I'm a businesswoman. I own my business. I never thought of that before. And it changes you, you know, when you are fully... Claim it. Claim. Thank you. That's the word. I felt like I claimed a lot of aspects of myself that I hadn't claimed fully or in that way before. And it changes things. As businesswoman, you know, what in terms of your offerings and what do you want to, what are you giving to the world for, particularly around the nature-based work that you want to Hmm. tell us about? Hmm. So I think on one hand, which is what everybody feels, it feels like everybody's on that path these days to, um, to just offer people more invitations to also be in nature, you know, like the leadership programs that I, that I run adding more pauses or asking people to walk in nature with a partner rather than sit in a room. So any moment I can to add a nature experience as well as use nature as a metaphor, people, people really, that's the metaphors people immediately get. Um, And then continue to guide Co- well, always co-guide uh, Vision Fast. And so you spoke of the mirror training. So so this is an aspect of Vision Fast, which I think is an important process. I teach the four shields 
Um, I actually use that in my coaching. I always have it in the back of my mind. It's not just where the person who is coming to me is at that moment, but I put them into the context of their journey of their life. And that, that just gives such a different perspective. And people love that when I mirror that back, you know. Mm. I don't just see a person who came to me and said, how can I manage up? But I also see a person who is in their mid, let's say, 40s, you know, who is now in this place of claiming full adulthood, you know, I want, a, I want a seat at the table mm. and I can, and that shifts the relationship to how I think about managing up or, you know, managing across and, and just that I think changes things. Um, mm. And I am, um, I'm also uh, for the second year, we, we hope it fills up with COVID-19, but um with two friends, there's a river trip on the Green River in Utah, where we, this is for women, um, where we take women out in canoes and they have a solo and it's this red rock, you know, labyrinth oh, canyon. Oh, yeah. And, you know, when you hike up, it, you see this, this plateau, which looks like Monument Valley. Yeah. And I find every landscape brings something else different out in me. And not having grown up there, I find the first time I was introduced to this Red Rock country, you know, Arches mm -hmm. or Capitol Reef or Zion or Bright, not Brightness, uh, Bryce, it brings out feline energy in me. <laughs> you know, I've, I've always loved climbing, but yeah. I feel I become, you know, a mountain lion. Good. Like I, I just, I just run up cliffs and I jump and I. Yeah go down and I, I go through water and I, it's almost like I wake up afterwards and I'm like, how did I get here? <laughs> My limbs are different. I have dreams of cats. So wow. I think, you know, in that way, being in that labyrinth Canyon for women is an incredible experience. And the, the shapes of the rocks yes. are metaphorical, you know, you see a council of elders or what a womb or whatever, whatever it is. And then the other yeah. thing I'm doing, which you are, uh, a part of bringing together different strands of my life and weaving them into a program, which I call your true nature program. And it's that your true, nat true nature very often can be found in nature. And this whole idea of nature being a partner with us and we're being a partner with nature. So it's the respect, the sacredness of being in nature, but also fully trusting that nature will give us and bring to us what it is we need. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a, it's, it's both of those trusts, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so I've been um, shaping a program that brings together all the rite of passage, vision fast, sacred ceremonies process, and also translating it to the more linear, rational mm -hmm. coaching competencies and tools and just the words, you know, we talked about that yesterday. Ceremony can also be a practice or a tool or a process. Mm -hmm. And you can speak it differently, but you can hold it the same. Um, and so that nature program um, we've offered in person and now we've shifted it to also virtual and um, it's accredited. So people can get a continuing education credits, which people usually need to continue to be part of their, you know, of the coaching associations that they, that they might be part of. So it feels it's a wonderful weaving and bridge building, you know, we're bringing in the poetry and the songs and, and the mirroring, but then there's also the very concrete aspect of, where's your coachy at? Yeah. 
and what what do you offer for that? And when do you ask a question and when do you mirror, right? And and how do you shape how much nature they can take? Just to reflect back, I love how you integrate and it's your both your personality and my experience of you, the adult, you're the North structured self and then this very, you know, very sensual in, in her body, soulful person that just weaves all these different components. And I think it's very accessible uh, for, mm. a, a, you know, a wider audience. What bonds or buy-in or engagement have you had from, from people with when nature work? Mm-hmm. Coaches generally love it. And I think still are very much like me exploring how can you bring this into our primarily, I would say, corporate leadership executive world. I think when you're a life coach, primarily, the opportunities might be different. And so I think coaches love it. But but which parts, you know, do I use metaphors? Do I give more homework, so to speak, in that way? But coaches, I find, are very, very much resonating with it. Um, it, it becomes sort of how can I build my business on it mm-hmm. or, you know, who will go along with it to what degree, who is a paying, paying client. Um, my friends have all loved it. Um, I've offered a lot of programs in DC, weekend programs or like a day long programs, but one each season. And I've now done this three or four times. And I would say a lot of my close friends have done it and brought their friends and just, it's been transformative for them, you know, just like it has been for us when we do vision fast, you know? So again, people who trust me, who know me, who know of me, they're like, okay, I'll do it. Workshop participants, uh, especially leadership training, they appreciate so much having more space and time doing work in nature by day two. They're like, can we go out? Can we go out? You know, and, and then absolutely forget the PowerPoint, you know, not important. Um, I have not uh, found that, so the innate, the longing, mm. the wanting response is always, no matter mm. who it is, oh yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Oh, I love that. Oh, I want that. Um, the actual making it happen is, is, feels still more, more difficult, that next step, you know, like I can see potential. I, I remember talking once to a, to a person who works for Google and they said, Oh my God, we, we must do a, a team quest. And I said, can do it tomorrow. But the convincing to try it just hasn't, hasn't, you know, happened. Um, the board of the ICF local DC chapter, um, wanted to do it as a team and then it got postponed because of COVID. But that would be when it happens, that'll be my first mm. team team experience. So um, again, soul, heart, body, mind, yes. But the step off, let's then do it. Um, that's a bit more, has been a bit more, has been more difficult. Mm. Yeah. And then the getting it as paid work. Yeah. yeah. It's a bit cheesy. <laughs> but um there are, in terms of tips, you know, to increase your connection, well, with your own true nature or wider nature. What comes to me right away is that the easiest entry is through the south, through the body, through the senses. Yes, you probably want some, probably have gone through that, some soul searching, you know, or you've, you've, you've gone full cycle, you know, you think about how do I keep myself safe when I go out 
and you might feel this spiritual aspect of I want to broaden or I want to deepen or I, I want to meditate and rest. But I think the entrance for me mm. is that, that, that child, that child that is, is living with abandon, yeah. you know, the child that is allowing itself to take it out, you know, and, and take off and take, take apart and be curious and sensual and in it and, and investigate and um, be open to whatever it is mm. and not see risk, mm. but see the growing ability to do something. You know, if I can't cross this fallen log standing up, kids will go on all fours or they'll go on their belly. Right. <laughs> and that's what I do, you know, yeah. because you just keep safe. Um, if I feel overwhelmed and I want to cry, I sit down and I cry. So I feel the tip for me would be, you know, take your, your, your child by the hand and let it guide you. And so the moment you step out with that intention of, uh, of just fully being in nature and see what, what partner it is and what gifts it's bringing, let your child guide you. Uh, that sounds super fun and super useful. Yeah, you know. <laughs> lovely. Yeah, and, and dance and sing and do whatever, you know, safely and... Go bare feet and get, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Take your shoes off, you know? Yeah. And strangely enough, um, I have, you know how as adults we're so worried about what do other people think? Hmm. And that kind of curtails that makes us, I feel makes us smaller. It's like always this vigilance. Um, I have not had one person come back from a solo experience who said either they noticed others or they cared about it. <laughs> to sort of complete it, I know you love your poems. You're always so generous in, in feeding back your poems. Do there that you'd like to share? I do. Thank you. And so um, the first one is really very much in line with what I said earlier, letting the child, your child guide you. And I think it's the right one for this, this time that we're, that we're in. Um, and also, you know, really, really paying attention to what does your whole body, soul, heart, spirit say where you need to go, right? What you are attracted to, what you're attuning to, and just going with that. And so this poet is called, uh, this poem is called The Clearing, and the poet is Martha Postlewaite. And I pretty sure I heard it the first time on my first vision fast, which is when poetry just became that ancient language that I didn't know, right? That wow. just comes back out of the DNA. So that's what nature does. You remember your ancestral DNA. So the clearing. Do not try to save the whole world or do anything grandiose. Instead, create a clearing in the dense forest of your life and wait there patiently until the song that is your life falls into your own cupped hands and you recognize and greet it. Mm, wow. I, I, I feel it right all the way up mm. from my belly. Where do, where do you feel it? Oh, it is. It's a, it's a shiver. It's down to my, down to my, it's on my feet and up here. Just, yeah. yeah. Just right up. 
Mm. Yeah. So, you know, one solo time walk could be to just be the poem, you know, just go up and sit there and just see what falls into your hand. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. Yeah. So the second one. Thank you. You ready? All right. Are you ready? Yeah. Or do you need, yeah, okay. So the second one is called, it's by by Rilke, and it's called The Man Watching. Ah, that's a, but you do really. Yeah, right, for this time. And I must admit, I, I feel the urge to read it every time I take people uh, into nature. There's a sacredness to it. Um, but do you read it in German? Obviously not to this audience, but do you read his work in German? Interesting. Um, I have read this poem in German a few times, and it has helped me to, to understand a little bit more what's behind it. But I rarely do because my audience is always is always English-speaking, really. And I didn't grow up with poetry. Mm. So my access to Rilke has been American friends who have said, this is amazing guy, Rilke. And I said, Rilke who? <laughs> Great. So, you know, good. so, yeah, the man yeah, watching. the man watching. I can tell by the way the trees beat after so many dull days on my worried window panes that a storm is coming. And I hear the far off fields say things I can't bear without a friend. I can't love without a sister. The storm, the shifter of shapes, drives on across the woods and across time. And the world looks as if it had no age. The landscape, like a line in a psalm book, is seriousness and weight and eternity. What we choose to fight is so tiny. What fights with us is so great. If only we could let ourselves be dominated as things do by some immense storm, we would become strong too and not need names. When we win, it's with small things and the triumph makes us small. What is extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us. I mean the angel who appeared to the wrestlers of the Old Testament when the wrestlers' sinews grew long like metal strings. He felt them under his fingers like chords of deep music. Whoever was beaten by this angel, who often simply declined the fight, went away proud and strengthened and great from that harsh hand that needed him as if to change his shape. Winning does not tempt that man. This is how he grows, by being defeated decisively by constantly greater beings. Oh, that's immense. I need to go and lie down. (laughs) I know. It's like, what a way. I think we have to do something bubbly right now. It's like, what? (laughs) <laughs> oh wow okay on that big note beautiful 
you. Thank you. Surrender so to much. the storm. Yeah. Right? Surrender to the storm. Fly. Yeah. Oh, well, it's been so nice you. to have this conversation with you. I feel like it's another version of my story that has been, you know, spiraling, coming into my into my DNA, right? Because every time we tell our story, it sort of <laughs> yeah. manifests itself differently. So yeah. thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you for sharing. Bringing your full self and uh, lovely. So we'll pause here and see you back for the next Earth Converse podcast. And tell us what you think and comment, subscribe, share, follow, tell it to the wind and enjoy Earth one conversation at a time.